Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando. I have a fantastic guest today, David Green. David D. Green III is the founder, president, and CEO of Urbanomics Consulting Group in Washington, D.C. It's a public relations firm, the media strategies of which are designed to build awareness, credibility, and influence for clients in order that they may impact key public policy issues. I like that. David is an award-winning strategist, consultant, executive coach to leaders in industry, independent and public sectors, and philanthropy. The services include, among other things, strategy thinking, facilitation, uh, felicitation, and execution. Welcome to the show, David D. Green III. How are you? I am well today. (laughs) Thank you, you, Marcello, for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I guess I, I, I should tell people we met... Uh, in because I was working for you, I guess, um, in a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you were the boss of the boss, let's put it that way, Caliber's uh, fall meeting of uh, 2016. David, even though we want to talk about urbanomics, tell us a little about how and why we met at Caliber's fall meeting in the 2016, What because that sort of is, uh, sort of relates to urbanomics, right? Yes, that is correct. Uh, Caliber, in fact, um, I guess you could say they, they were the boss of all of us, but that, <laughs> yes. uh, all of our bosses at that particular point. Um, but uh, Caliber is a client of Urbanomics, uh-huh. and when we worked together, we were actually working on this very interesting pro- uh, project that still is getting rave reviews. Okay. Uh, really, it's a it's a business theater, um, and uh, you know, it's really excited by the idea even today to think about being able to bring live actors to uh, act out sort of scenes mm-hmm. uh, that all of these leaders who attended the meetings, many familiar kind of experiences that they have, and um, the fact that we were able to have live actors through your efforts and those of the other partners, um, 
was it was it was great and really innovative and something that we look to do with our clients of course you want to sort of shake up the apple cart if you will and mm-hmm. do things that are different so yes longtime client of ours actually we've been working with them now for about 15 years so, oh wow okay yeah, we, we must be doing something right you <laughs> must be I, I, you know yeah. i i know uh, your your company is headquartered in Washington, D.C., which in itself is of no small feat, especially considering that some of your primary goals are taking leaders and potential leaders. Um, uh, well, maybe I should let you tell. What, what is it you do exactly? What, what does Urbanomics do? Yes. And so you mentioned, um, you know, the, the PR, uh, really the way we talk about that work is the uh, facilitation of institutional and social change. Mm-hmm. So after having done that work for many, many, many years, one of the things that really started to surface us pretty early, and then we were able to verify much later, is that after even sort of coming up with great strategies, working with our clients, many of them didn't have the kind of leadership in place, inclusive leadership, diverse leadership in place mm-hmm. to, be the face of, uh, to be the face of those efforts. And so we then got into the business of uh, leadership development, diversity and inclusion, and then also leadership development. Mm. And so our most recent work together, uh-huh. in mind, uh, we were able to, um, you were able to see that aspect of our work. So that practice around leadership development and the consultants who support us in that area is where we most recently um, had the opportunity to work together. So you are, uh, among other things, expanding the influence of people of color in business and public policy and social issues, obviously. Yes? Uh, absolutely. That is our that is the core of our mission, uh, particularly in a town like Washington, D.C. I mean, you know, it is... Yes. Uh, Washington, D.C., it bears reminding, uh, uh, still does not have, uh, I mean, it has a representative in Congress, but it does, it is not a a state. It does not have the representation, you know, the the old, uh, well, I shouldn't refer to it as a cliche, it's a fact, taxation without representation. Washington, D.C., as a city, as the nation's capital, still lives under that umbrella, and I just think it's just it's perfect that your company is headquartered there because it is the center of our politics, but it is also the center of many of the of the issues that uh, urbanomics is trying to address. How's that? Correct. Yeah. Yes, that is correct. That is exactly right. Uh, you know, I like to think of my work, uh, my own work, and my passion about the work as a calling. And so, yes. you know, oftentimes in answering the call, you get placed right where you need to be. Yes. So, you know, uh, I'd like, I like to think of it that way. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us um, somewhere, you know, beginning, I, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that there's so much 
about you, David, so much you've accomplished and, and still are accomplishing. But there, there are certain organizations or actions or events that took place that just sort of hit me. For instance, what is the Evergreen Diamond? I mean, I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, you know I wouldn't yeah. miss something like that. <laughs> Essentially, it's a leadership development coaching model, and um, like a diamond has sort of the five C's. If you think about the diamond, you know the color, the clarity, mm -hmm. the you know the the um, the cut, etc. Uh, the model has five key aspects to them as well. Mm -hmm. I certainly can relate to that because even in getting into radio again, the last time I'd been on radio was long before my New York years and soap operas and all that sort of thing and, and theater. And when I left New York to take care of my parents, who, who lived very near D.C., I looked into things to do and, and uh, happened upon radio to get back into it and said, uh, just helping a friend out. I said, oh, yes, I'll be glad to, to uh, host that talk show. And uh, when they took me to the studio, you know, radio, when the last time I had been in it was a microphone and a sound studio with glass so I could see the engineers. Now, all of a sudden, it was these, I had, there were three computers, keyboards. I had to find the stories, write the stories, record the stories, edit the stories, and upload the stories into a computer. I didn't have someone like you there <laughs> helping me out, but I... I I do hear what you're saying. There, there are people who have always sort of been uh, ignored, left out of the conversation, as you said, left behind, the last to be listened to or, uh, you know, accepted election time. Uh, but the reality is there are many uh, occupations, the new occupations, new careers that are coming at us so fast that if we, are, if we don't have help uh, adjusting and getting ready and educating ourselves to them, what what do we do, David? Yeah, well, um, that's a good 
good, it's a big question. Yes. I think uh, today the, the 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 most important thing I would say is um, you know I think networks are really really powerful for that very reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we and when we think of our personal networks, oftentimes we think of friends and people who we grew up with. Mm. And certainly that's one aspect, and that's mm-hmm. a personal aspect of our relationship. Um, in our networks, yes. if we sort of just, you know, sort of suss that out a little more and think about that a little bit more intentionally, we realize that there are also these operational networks that mm. we have. So if you are in a work environment regularly and you work for a large organization or you uh, partner with a bunch of work, other organizations, what naturally comes out of that is that there are people who you rely on and interface with pretty regularly and they become a part of your operational network. Mm-hmm. So there's this exchange of information and contacts, you know, things that really help enable and facilitate your success. Mm-hmm. We like to add a third component to that, and that is to be, uh, you know, a strategic kind of category, if mm-hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. And um, that's really important because it's about where you're going. So for any leader who is, has the ambition or who is interested in growing and developing, um, they need to really think about their network and building it in a way for where they are headed. Mm. So the operational and the personal to a large extent will support you where you are. But if you have a vision for the future, just like in strategy, you are challenged to articulate what that vision is. And then in its execution, you then set out to assemble a group of people who can support you in achieving that vision. So, um, I think it's really about the relationships. So any good leader is going to have is going to excel at that. Mm. So if you don't have, you know, but you, you can't afford a coach or you can't afford to approach uh, to participate in a leadership development program, you know, most of us have good friends or people who we can uh, relate to or ask questions or or exchange ideas. So um, that's why I would encourage them to start. The other you know, probably obvious place is um, if you are someone who likes to read and uh, research, then, you know, the internet can become a, a, a you know, wonderful tool for that reason because mm-hmm. there's just so much information out there today. So is, yeah. is this what you call or refer to as relationship science? That's enough? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, it, yeah, that's absolutely a part of it. An aspect of it, yes. And and so, well, elaborate a bit more, if you will. What is relationship science? I love it. It, it, <laughs> it uh, and I'll tell you why. I, I mean, it seems to me that it, it it's not just a, a catchy, clever uh, identity. It it combines two different ways of thinking. Am I even close? Relationship yes, science. No, absolutely. Okay. Yes, it is. Um... So, you know, it's about this intentional way of being connected and related. Mm. And so, um, it's, you know, business relationships are just one aspect of that. Mm. But it can absolutely be around um, your personal relationships, as we just talked about. Mm. So, you know, any association by, some talk about as kinship or, you know, connections or mutual interest, really understanding those, mapping them, and then understanding how your intentional actions sort of feed in advance everyone's sort of collective 
wellness and being and existence in that is absolutely a part of what some of the talk about in terms of relationship science. Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating just to, to listen to your explanations. I feel like, ah, my IQ is going up. You're much too kind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and, and I know we've, we've both we've been speaking in specifics and generalities, and we're going to continue, of course, to listen to the wisdom of David D. Green III. But before we go to a break, I just want to try one other question. And if we don't have enough time in this segment, David, we'll come back to it. Uh, tell us about marketing in the age of social influence. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're, you're asking some, <laughs> some good questions there. I think, um, you know, marketing is, is, this is particularly interesting to me right now because uh, when I started the company, the idea at that time really was to um, come up with a business model that made sense for what we were trying to accomplish. Mm. And so when I, when I started the business, I knew very clearly at that time that it was almost impossible. When I look at the enormity of the challenges around, you know, when you talk about social justice issues mm -hmm. or social issues in general, it's pretty big and yes. lots of opportunities. And we were really pointing our business model at a very specific customer segment, if you will, or segment of the, of the um, population. Mm -hmm. And, you know, organizations, nonprofit organizations, so it was important to develop something that they could afford. Yes. And as we thought about that model, uh, we recognized that one to two people really weren't going to be able to have an impact in a really significant way. There was so much need there. And uh, yet and still, to be completely honest, as a man of color, as a black man, felt like I needed to have a business behind me to um, to help legitimize me and what I was selling. Mm -hmm. to, be, to be completely, you know, sort of give you a view into what I was thinking, because that was just the politics of where we are, yes. right? Yes, And um, so in so doing that, right, um, you know, we were really successful at building a brand in urbanomics um, as a neologism, is the, you know, the name is something that we created. Yes. People got really excited by it. It caught attention. It caught fire. And uh, before long, it was really interesting because I shifted away from where if I would go in as a consultant and they sort of did as, as an individual consultant mm -hmm. and they'd be saying, oh, well, you know, we want to hire you or you, you come to work for us. Uh, it shifted to, okay, we are looking for urbanomics to take on an, an initiative for us or help us yes. direct or develop an initiative. And so to develop a successful brand uh, was something that we were able to achieve and was really excited about. And many years later, as I thought about my own identity uh, and I thought about my own brand, mm -hmm. quite frankly, I was living in the shadows of the company yeah. because I had never really intentionally gone out to sort of market myself other than, you know, a, you know, books that I had contributed to, articles I had written, any presentations, you know, or conference keynotes. And so when you really start to think about all of that, um, you know, I'm living in the, through the age of social media, yeah. uh, you know, the employees, the partners said, you know, you have a brand and you really need to be very intentional about marketing about it. So um, the evergreen method, the evergreen diamond, all of those are 
actually very much aspects of this overall brand mm-hmm. that is distinctive urbanomics for David Green. And so uh, very fitting that you've asked that. So Twitter, you know, and, um, and the LinkedIn social profiles, all of those are important aspects now of how I manage my, my own brand. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and so we encourage leaders to, of course, think about it in that way as well because uh, at the you know, really, their brand is actually an asset for not only themselves, but for the companies that they work at as well. So it's important to have a, it's important to have that social footprint for marketing purposes as well, uh, just to make sure that you are capitalizing on opportunities for yourself. Absolutely, I understand. It's one thing to have this a, a vision, you know, and and even to carry out the vision, but to be able to translate it for other people who who don't necessarily relate to that vision until you can tell them about it i think that's a a, certainly another talent which you have david that i've i've seen firsthand for that matter oh i agree can i add one thing to that sure just to tie that just to tie that back also to the relationship science piece because you know i think there are you know I mean, social media can be a pastime for folks, right? It can be mm. just a hobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you leverage it in the context of the idea of connecting to influencers and power brokers, you know, like my own profile is very much is uh, designed to speak to clients mm-hmm. and potential clients. And so, um, you know, word choice is everything just to connect with them and to speak to them in a language that makes sense for what they are also trying to achieve for themselves. So uh, all of it definitely, I think, is, is um, it, it, all, it all works together, or at least that's the intention. <laughs> I, I see. All right. Yeah. Well, listen, we're going to take a short break. We are talking to David D. Green III, who is the founder, president, and CEO of Urbanomics, a consulting group which is headquartered in Washington, D.C., by no accident. And we'll be right back. Please stay with us. We're going to talk uh, about some of uh, David's personal history, as well as what he envisions for helping society, all of society, but especially those who are not always listened to, how they can make an impact. I think we waste human resources far too often in our history. Anyway, we're, we're talking to David D. Green III. We'll be right back. Please stay with us. Film Rental Discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Here's one from the treasure chest. John Sayles' 1987 drama, Mate Wan. Sayles was one of the originals, before we'd even heard the term independent film. Working with little money and loads of passion, he's uninterested in gimmickry, preferring substance over style. He tells simple stories about complex characters, making irresolvable moral choices. Mate Wan is a classic struggle between the haves and the have-nots, the powerful and the powerless. It's an ambitious story of miners, victimized by their corporate masters. When a union organizer comes to town, they strike, simply seeking livable conditions. They soon come into conflict with the notorious Baldwin Feltz detective agency hired by the Stone Mountain Coal Company. The resulting deadly shootout was the trigger for the Great Coalfield War and the infamous Battle of Blair Mountain 
where air power was used for the first time against American citizens. At its core, Mate One is the story of the downtrodden standing up against corporate masters at a time when corporations are free from the restraints of government control. There are brilliant performances in this indie gem. Chris Cooper's film debut as the fictional union organizer Joe Kennahan and James Earl Jones as Few Clothes Johnson, one of his most powerful film roles ever, and he's had more than a few. Mate One is a treasure not to be missed. Indie Film Minute, not in theaters, discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today, David D. Green III, the founder, president, and CEO of Urbanomics Consulting Group, headquartered in Washington, D.C., We've talked a lot about how David's began, but things have expanded. The vision is growing and things are broadening. Uh, David, tell us. Yeah, no, so, so it was, uh, so when we started out, I guess we were primarily, we we're a company whose, you know, capabilities really uh, were in PR and marketing. Mm-hmm. And um, so many of our clients would absolutely hire us to help them with PR and marketing, and we would bring the strategy sort of um, discipline to that to help them with, you know, crafting and communicating their marketing messages, their PR messages, and today, a lot of our work is just broader strategy, mm-hmm. so, um, and particularly when they're trying to market to people of color, mm-hmm. and they're trying to communicate their social responsibility, you know, and strategies around that, we are the company that they are, uh, you know, one of the companies that they're choosing to help them articulate that value, but mm-hmm. also to build strategies internally to help with that. What exactly? Let's let's get even more specific. What? Uh, who are you doing this for? What businesses are you working with, and what exactly do you offer the clients? The or how do you offer them? I guess the the skills and experience and professionalism. I, I, it, because it sounds like you're a large public relations firm, but you are more than that with the flexibility and the access, if you will, and the service and the caring, which I hear in your answers of, um, what do we say, a more of a, uh, a more of a boutique firm. So you sort of uh, find that balance. T- tell us about that. Yeah, so boutique firm is absolutely correct. And we think of ourselves as a, as a boutique partner to those larger PR companies. Um, And, you know, they they come in with, uh, you know, a lot of the discipline, of course, with marketing messages and um, focus groups, advertising development. We focus on helping them reach out to a niche market. So when it comes down to communities of color, a lot of the time they will partner with us. When it comes down to helping identify, recruit, and develop leaders who who will thrive in those environments, right? Be very successful in being able to lead those markets or lead the organizations that reach out to those markets. That is where we excel. And so there are, so it can be a Marriott International, mm. for example, with their um, their new group uh, function and some of the work that they're doing to build out those capabilities for themselves and identifying leaders and a pipeline leaders who have interest in that area mm. that's some place mm. that we are partner um it could be wells fargo who's also a client of ours mm. and we work with them to identify and develop some of their high potential leaders um who will excel 
excel in the diversity and inclusion uh, organizations and leading them inside those large companies. So those are just two examples. Some of the associations, uh, we talked about Caliber just yes. a little while ago. Yes. Um, we work with, yeah, so we have a number of association clients who we work with in that same way. And so Caliber is an association made up of African-American senior managers um, who are really preparing themselves to break through to those first sort of senior executive roles in their organizations. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I like to just think of we brought our focus and we have, um, before we would really be focusing on the marketing and getting the message out about the importance of really talking to people of color communities. Mm-hmm. As companies have gotten more and more savvy about uh, diversity and inclusion, uh, now it's really about sustainable strategies inside mm-hmm. the organization to really integrate those markets into their business models. And so that's where we really focused these days. So we're developing strategy for clients in, in independent, private, and public sectors. Correct. Exactly. Gotcha. So, okay. Yep. It, yep. We, um, and it's, it's, uh, these small markets today can really make up a sizable part of any of these companies, their portfolios, particularly when you think about uh, when you think about the black diaspora around the world versus just thinking about them in a particular community or in mm. the United States alone. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't know how one can, with what you're doing, es- escape politics. How, well, you see where I'm going. How, how intentionally or unintentionally in the city of Washington, D.C., does uh, urbanomics um, touch upon uh, or invade politics? Yeah. Well, you know, just by virtue of focusing on inclusion, yes, uh, diversity and inclusion, you know, politics are just a part of that. And yes. we talk about, um, you know, part of the lens for the way we think about the work is social justice. Uh, and when you think about that or if you're having a conversation, right, I mean, if you were to translate that into sort of business speak, stakeholder interests or constituency relations or, you know, all of those politics really are trying to juggle the interests of many, right? Mm-hmm. Giving everyone a seat at the table, if you will. Yes. Um, and, geez, I think uh, sometimes I think of the large corporations, uh, the multinational, as being probably more political than, uh, you know, just the society as a whole. Because yes. There's all, there are a bunch of competing interests and priorities all the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that is the art of leadership, I guess, right? Like if someone would define it as where a leader can get all of the constituencies to agree mm-hmm. that um, they're, you know, to, to work together in a way that addresses some of everyone's interests. Perhaps not all, mm-hmm. all the time, but certainly some until it's until there is an opportunity to be able to uh, be, you know, more Well, you know, and I hear you, David, and I think what is it? You are educating a huge part of the population, too, to understand why you are addressing another huge, a different large segment of the population. Did that question, did that, was I clear? In other words, some. Go ahead. No, 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 no,
Well, uh, just that I, as I listen to you, I re- I'm remembering things. For instance, years ago, certainly the finest black actors I'd ever directed. She was an amazing talent, no longer with us, but God bless her. She called me because she had written, I directed her in a few shows, and she had written a play called Charcoal Sketches, an amazing title. And it was about the uh, Harlem Renaissance and uh, people like Zora Neale Hurston and Bethune and, and Du Bois and so forth. And, and I had to tell you, when she first brought it to me, I, I said to her, well, but Betty, I, I'm, I don't know a lot about this, this subject or, or this history, because, of course, when I went to school, I, something that still galls me, we weren't taught the whole history. Um, and um, anyway, so I remember her saying to me, don't worry, Marcello, I'll teach you everything. And indeed she did. So I come back to the education. I often I meet people who still to this day, um, when I think of myself as being uh, certainly uh, a person open to the equality and justice for all and, you know, uh, diversity, etc. And still I'm learning Uh, as I am today talking to you, I'm learning that there's just so much that the different segments of society don't know they have in common. How's that? And how, go ahead, how do you glue that? How do you pull that together? Well, you know, it's, uh, to to be as candid as I can, I would say that, um, you know, it is a big job and we all have our own vantage point and perspective. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone would like to, um, I mean, it's, it's very unique, right? I mean, everyone just naturally, by our ethnicity and our vantage point and our social status, et cetera, we will have a unique perspective. And I think that's the beauty of diversity. Mm. How do you get that to a point of inclusion where it's being leveraged for something good mm. is the question, because in many cases, diversity becomes polarizing versus unifying. Mm. And so I think that's really what you were talking about. Yes. And when we when we have um, the mindfulness, right? When we are cognizant of the fact that we all have that sort of unique perspective, and particularly, you know, when we talk about the United States, yes, yes there are some who have more power, more privilege, etc. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, most folks who come here or who grown up here and who have any ambition for what we call that American dream, whatever mm. it looks like today. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's about how do we all get along. Yes. And so yes, there has to be some education because we there's a lot to there's a lot in that from everyone's vantage point. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that anybody's successful at it. And I'm not certainly I'm not gonna say that I am. I do know that the work that we do aims to be successful at helping people appreciate embrace, mm. right, benefit mm. from and leverage the diversity of others, the, their own, you know, their own background, and um, and help us, help us all realize that we actually have more in common than we are different. Yes, yes. You know, and I mean, so, um, so I know that may sound very, <laughs> some might say that sounds political, but that's really what we're working for, and that's what I mean when I talk about those competing interests, because... Yes. Oftentimes, you know, there's all there's too few resources to go around to address the interest of so many people, mm. so many different groups of people. And um, so what do we do? We really focus ourselves on structural 
be and to be able to fully participate in the way they would like to. So structural racism, as you've probably heard about it, you know, institutional policies that get in the way of those things. So we look at ways to address those things, right? Break them down. How do you reimagine them in a way that works for inclusion and not exclusion? And the more I listen to you, the more I remember uh, certain times in my life when I've met people who have so educated me to what we are missing when we do not practice inclusion. Uh, just from the practical standpoint of the experience, and again, I, it is a pet peeve of mine that when, when I realized as a substitute teacher in history, that when I was a student, a child growing up studying history, the, the history books were not the entire history. And the contributions that have not been not even appreciated, let alone applauded or included in uh, our education, our general education schools, we miss uh, out on the expertise of uh, different cultures. That's what bugs me. I mean, so much needs our attention. And yet there's a wealth of potential, of abilities, of experience, of, of, of vision uh, that could contribute to the overall good of everybody. And yet it it is in danger again, dare I say, of returning to a, a point where we discount. I know I've thrown a lot. You, you tell me. You take it from there. Uh, no, I, I think you are absolutely correct, right? And, and it's, it's, it's about... Um... It's, you know, when I talk about those institutional policies and practices, mm-hmm. you, you know, that sits at the core of a lot of it, right? We talk about, we talk about the political will to make change, yes. right? Um, and, and some would argue that will is more important than skill, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The intent. And, um, but I, you know, I, I grapple with that, to be very honest with you, mm-hmm. uh, because I do think that we underestimate the importance of skill. Yes. So how does one actually go about breaking down institutional practices that uh, that minimize or denigrate people or actually will not uh, include certain cultures and the contributions that, that they make to a society? Right, mm. like how how do you right? Some of some of this is just learned behavior. Yes, and 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 so we spend lots of money to go to institutions that have practices in place, or they or they promote practices that tend to, um, you know, that that don't lean into diversity and inclusive kinds of practices today. And so, how do you re-educate people? You retrain them to do that. Um, because I don't think everything is sort of ill intent, right? It's mm. not that mm. people don't want to, they just don't know how they to don't know. in some of the cases. Mm. Yeah, so so, it, when, so I spend, and, and in our work, we spend a lot of time on institutional practices mm. because uh, today we talk about, we have these names for it, implicit bias, unconscious bias, right? Like, you know, we don't know that we are actually taking up a practice or harming people in the way we go about doing our work. Mm, mm. It's not intentional, yeah. right? And um, we all recognize that we're working with a bias or a set of beliefs that we are practicing in our behavior. So how do we get people to change that? And so, you know, they're training today. They're, you know, about awareness and 
but we hope always to build conscious competence so people are really very intentional about what they're doing um, and understanding the mm. impact of what they do and are doing and, and, and how it's, um, you know, the outcomes that it may lead to. So that, I think that's sort of a roundabout way to say we are all trying to educate ourselves as mm. much as we possibly can. I am always learning, and I think that's the real point to be in a space where you can be open enough to uh, want to be learning about other people mm. and not coming off with all of the assumptions that we make. Mm. In this political environment today, that is a um, that's a huge accomplishment in itself. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to have you back to go to that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes. Well, it's one thing perhaps we haven't touched on enough. I just wanted to at least mention it, even if it's as a question. Uh, You sound, in in large part, I feel you are a writer teaching uh, entrepreneurship. I know that's an oversimplification, but do you you do you see yourself as that or? Part of me, you know, I think of myself as a, uh, I, I like the term, I, I think of myself as a behaviorist. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that's how I often talk about myself in that regard, right? You know, I mean, there's, there's a technical aspect of that, you know, with, with the years of training and, and, you know, education, you know, some could say, yeah, that's what it is. But just at its core, I believe that because in, at, at my best, and that means when I'm aiming, when I'm at my best, mm-hmm. what I'm able to do is to help have an impact on a, on a leader's behavior, mm. um, right? And so really helping them embrace the best set of behaviors for them, the culture they're in, the goals that they have to help achieve. And that leader sometimes is an entrepreneur, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Where, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, yeah. have decimated those those um, organizations today. And while some of them still have some semblance of a HR department, right? They'll have HR business partners, or they'll have a um, very small lean team. You know, it, it's when you think about trying to help and support and develop tens of thousands of people communicates around the world, mm-hmm. right? The, yes. the small HR department today is just much too small to help to really be able to do that in a realistic way in terms of the expectations that we have for them. So I tend to look at myself as a behaviorist, and I define that in the context of these institutional practices and policies that um, either support or hinder a leader to be successful uh, by embracing behaviors, successful behaviors. Tell us a little, the two things I've been meaning to ask you, the influence of your mother on your life, the inspirational influence and the transition agility model. If we only have time for one, I go for your mother. hear the smile david i had i had read a bit uh in in researching for today's uh show and and it hit me Uh, i had a very close relationship with my mother but when i read about you and your mother i went 
we we've got we've got to ask him about that. We do have to run, David. This has been this has been a challenging, a call to action uh, conversation as well as incredibly informative and, and educational. And we will have to have you back. That's for sure. David D. Green III, everyone, founder, president, and CEO of Urbanomics Consulting Group, headquartered in Washington, D.C. David, how do we find out more about your group? Can you give us a website? How do we approach you and the company for uh, the the various uh, benefits that you uh, offer? Yes, thank you, Marcello. We are on the web at www.urbanomics.com and it's just it's like it sounds phonetically urbanomics u-r-b-a-n-o-m-i-c-s dot com and you can reach out from there there's a contact form mm-hmm. once someone in the office will get that uh, request if it's more for more information if it's want to talk about more of our models feel free to do that I am on Twitter at E-D-M that's Edward David Mary Leaders Coach. That's another way to contact me. And then David D. Green the third on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Thank you again so much, David, for being on the show. David D. Green the third. Really appreciate it. I'm so glad I got to meet you and work with you. And I'm glad now we've actually talked on radio. We've been talking about doing that for some time. All the best to you and Urbanomics Consulting Group. And everyone, uh, go visit that website. There's, um, there's more to be told and more to be done. Thank you again, David, for being on the show. All the best. Bye now. Thank you. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. A little Polish film entered indie theaters in 2014 and surprised everyone with its staying power. Ida drew audiences through word of mouth and earned itself a favorite place in the foreign language Oscar race. Under its quiet surface, Ida suggests the universal struggle of mankind to make sense of our existence. This is a world which fights to attain moral goals and leaves behind the detritus of corruption. Ida's journey is our path. A Catholic initiate, Ida's image of self, has been formed in a convent. Before taking her vows, she must now learn the secrets of her past. Guided by her deeply savaged aunt, Ida will discover her ancestry and the devastation that made her an orphan. Here we have allegory, vast human truths presented through an individual story. Visually, every frame of this stunning black-and-white film is worthy of display for the ages, with pearlescent detail emerging effervescent from deep shadow, beauty defined. Ida is contemplation at its best. True, contemplative might be read as warning, boring, boring, but not here. In this case, it is an apt opportunity to consider the state of mankind and our place within it. Mesmerizing. Ida. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the reasonable voice. Thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. The baseball lies we tell ourselves about Congress. Question is, where is the true hypocrisy? The public face of antagonistic vitriol polarization 
or the behind-closed-doors secret negotiations? Is the lie bitter congressional partisan media-assisted mob rule manipulation, or the foul line, an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us? Does all of us include African Americans and first Native American physician Suzanne Lafreche-Picotte? Or is the speaker's umbrella all, while shade for the congressional boys of summer, a retractable roof for women who prefer women? Is Paul Ryan's All of Us a ballpark paragraph five for children needing school food programs and seniors depending on Social Security for choosing between prescriptions or food? Who is all of us to a political party deserting Lincoln, trending through Nixon and trickle-down, rounding the bases with obstructionism, and walked through the swamp by the Trump? Is the lie we tell ourselves that before Ted Nugent's come-to-Jesus moment, the man from Nazareth preached, Hate thy neighbor with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your narrow-mind words? Are our lies defending those believing the NRA is more a family value than safety in schools, church, and workplaces? Has the diamonds, limelight, and sandy bloodshed finally enlightened right brains? Or are on-camera talking points getting talking heads to second base merely a swing and a miss at civility? Is the congressional play within the play sincerity attempting to snatch a modicum of decency from decades of bipartisan neglect, or is it possible personally feeling the burn of attempted murder exposes wounds of past targets ignored? Have the eyes of Congress finally been opened to the reality show of It's How You Play the Game? closing hearts, minds, and pockets to corruption? Or is it just an inning of gut-wrenching embarrassment for ignoring record-breaking scores of domestic violence, rape trial hung juries, strikeouts on mental health care legislation, and climate justice for the generations next at bat? Like any decent human being, I hope Congressman Steve Scalise and Tyson's food lobbyists, Mike Micka, win their fight to recover from gun violence. And I pray for all the personal and political families represented on that Alexandria fall field. As an American, however, I've grown weary of the dishonesty of a new normal pitching. It's more blessed to throw wide ones to open carry misrepresentations of our Bill of Rights. In this era in which anger, hate, and desire for revenge are incited by the most publicly powerful and privately influential, easily accessible weapons and failing to tag up on our humanity, we shut out our ability to think and our willingness to reason. Arguably, more Americans are now hoping for another batter-up for honor. However, honor is not produced by incivility, gender bias, hating LGBTQ pillage, rape, racial prejudice, religious intolerance, nor presidential arrogance, especially at gunpoint. If thinking outside the batter box, we cease our practice of scorching American unity with reckless rhetoric, we may yet avoid kissing our exceptional season goodbye. Historically, we've misinterpreted our Constitution, misplaced our trust, and tragically underrated American citizens who are not straight white males. 
choosing to elect managers who gnaw at our national soul for the sole purpose of satisfying a base hit pitched by homophobia for the supremacy of bigotry. And if we don't knock that one out of the park, it's back to the miners. However, when we quit fouling out on diversity, clean air, water, and safe food, we will free ourselves from internal demons and external demigods. Truth is, one, most of what ends our days in fear has been wrought on us by the envy, revenge, and violence of older white men. Two, what Nixon, Trump, and James Hodgkinson have in common? Age range, race, and hit lists. Three, lives of congressional conservatives shot in Alexandria, Virginia, were saved by people they vote against. Listen, Donald Trump didn't fire the starting pistol for how negatively some play the game. However, more than its symbol, Trump and Pence are the product of those who think our historic Dorian Gray picture is a home run. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Com website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.